Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the Asking for a Friend podcast, an elder-led ministry of Believer's Baptist Church in Emory, Texas. And my name is Duffy Henderson, and I'll be your host. The Asking for a Friend podcast exists as a weekly resource for the edification and benefit of God's people. Here, we hope to provide helpful, thoughtful, and most importantly, biblical material as we address everyday life questions and issues. So if you find this podcast helpful, please take a few moments to share it with someone that you think might also benefit from it. Thanks for listening in today to this episode, and may the Lord bless it greatly to you as a means of grace for your spiritual growth and benefit. We sure hope that you'll enjoy today's episode. Now, obviously, if you are uh, seeing this on YouTube or listening uh, on our podcast catchers, um, this is a different format that we're doing today. I'm by myself. I'm usually joined by Jason Rowland and Philip Castleton, but today scheduling didn't allow that to happen. And so we are uh, trying a new endeavor for the podcast, a little bit different format. And we've got a special guest today um, that I'll introduce in just a moment. But we hope to have a few more of these um, sprinkled in throughout um, the upcoming months as we are looking to expand kind of what we do on the Asking for a Friend podcast. And so today we're talking just in general about Reformation theology and worship practices, particularly in Baptist churches and the historical roots that we have in the 16th century Baptist or 17th century Baptist and how that can inform us and, and help shape our corporate worship practices in the local church. So before we dive in, I want to introduce and, and welcome aboard um, this episode, Dr. Scott Annual. Um, he is executive vice president and editor-in-chief of G3 Ministries and professor of pastoral theology at Grace Bible Theological Seminary. Um, and many of you know I'm a student at Grace Bible Theological Seminary. And this summer, um, I've actually taken a course, I believe it's his first course with us in uh, Theology of Worship. And it's exciting so far, and the, the reading has been good, and looking forward to um, being on campus in August as we gather and, and finish out the semester. But he is also a teacher of culture and worship and aesthetics and church ministry philosophy. And he's lectured around the country, and I believe around the world as well, um, yeah. in, different, in um, different places, uh, doing conferences on college campuses and seminaries. And he's authored several books and dozens of articles. And I believe right now, Dr. Annual, you can find all of your articles that are online at g3men.org. Is that correct? Right. Yep. That's where I'm blogging now regularly. And so That's all great. the content's there. Yeah. Yeah. And so I wanted to, uh, for our listeners as well, I wanted to bring a couple of his new publications. Um, he, this is a little small, very accessible book and that may be backwards here, but it's entitled Biblical Foundations of Corporate Worship, and that is put out by Free Grace Press. It's a very great little book that just came out this year, as well as a larger book. You may not be able to see it well, but this is Change from Glory into Glory. And this is a pretty comprehensive historical look at the church's worship pretty much since the beginning of time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, we go from the Old Testament to the New Testament and all the way up until very recently in church history. And so, again, uh, Dr. Annual, we're so thankful for you to be on this um, episode today. And before we dive in, I'd love for you to just take a moment to introduce yourself to our listeners. Um, many people probably won't know who you are, but I'd love for them to get to know you. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much for the privilege. Glad to invest in this endeavor. Yeah. Um, yeah so the last 10 years, I 
was on faculty at Southwestern Baptist Seminary in Fort Worth and uh, taught in the area of ministry philosophy, worship, and those sorts of courses. Thoroughly enjoyed my time uh, teaching and investing in ministers of the gospel. Uh, and then just this past fall, I came on uh, full-time with G3 Ministries, and I'm involved with uh, helping to lead the, the ministry. And then a lot of my work involves producing materials for local churches, everything from our regular uh, blog posts that go up every day at g3min.org. Uh, but also we've gotten, we've begun G3 Press to publish books for the local church, free curricula on the website, as well as the conferences that we hold. So we're just trying to encourage and equip and edify uh, believers in local churches uh, for God's glory. And so I'm excited to be a part of that. One of my biggest, uh, one of the biggest things that I was sad to leave was investing mm. in, in pastors and, and mm continuing in, in seminary education. So I was thrilled when towards the end of the fall semester, Dr. Owen Strand called me and said, hey, would you like to join our faculty at Grace Bible Theological Seminary? And so I jumped at that opportunity very quickly, and I'm just thrilled for the opportunity to continue that and uh, to teach this class this summer and to invest in in uh, ministers in this area of worship, which I think is, is very, very important. Um, so we've moved here to Douglasville, Georgia. We're west of Atlanta. My wife, Becky, and I have been married for 18 years. We've got four children, ranging from 15 down to four. And so we're just enjoying this. Uh, we're kind of just feeling settled in, uh, just able to move into my new office here. It's not quite finished. Yeah. Some doors need to be put on, but uh, kind of getting into the swing of things and really excited about continuing to invest in local churches and in pastors and helping people to think biblically about all sorts of issues. And my sort of central focus of my writing and teaching is the area of biblical worship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, we were talking right before we started and his office is coming together really nicely. It looks great. The colors are good. And Yep. You know, he's excited to finally get everything together, right? I, I was away from my books since October, so you know you, you don't yeah. want to you don't want to separate a, a pastor from his books or a theologian from his books. No, so no. I I was happy to get my hand back on my friends. That's 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 great. Yeah, books are are some of my best friends. That's right. Um, love that. Well, Doctor Annual, I'd, I'd love to spend some time this this episode and just talk for a minute. As we, we kind of get into this, um, we want this to be helpful, um, and th it is theological, but we want this to be very helpful as it maybe spark some curiosity, maybe spark some questions and, and some thoughts that hadn't been thought about yet with some of the folks that might be listening to our, our episode. But we want to begin with, um, well, let me preface this. Our church has, uh, for about six months or eight months, um, we have started going through the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith on Sunday mornings in a Sunday school hour to introduce it and to teach through it to our church. And we are looking to adopt it as um, an additional statement of faith and kind of a, 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 one of our governing documents of sorts in the fall. Lord willing, that's the plan. And so we have been uh, we have some previous episodes on a couple of the chapters of the 1689. And we are just we're thrilled to. Um, to add this to strengthen our um, position in the culture. And, you know, when someone is looking inward at us as a church, we can draw some, some, um, some steadfast lines in the sand, so to speak. And I think that today that's so important. 
And uh, there's a very helpful chapter that we want to look at today in the 1689 specifically, um, but we'll get there. And that's dealing with the church and its worship. But before we get there, uh, kind of what le what leads us to the 1689 is the Protestant Reformation. And we're talking Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and uh, Bootser, I believe is how you pronounce his name, and several of yeah. those men who um, fueled this resurgence and reformation of the church. They wanted to see it come back to scripture and be abundantly scriptural um, in its worship and its practice. So, Scott, would you talk to us just a little bit about um, kind of where Baptists come from in the sense of yeah. the Reformation? Yeah. No, this is an excellent way to approach this. There's so much controversy and debate and discussion over worship today. And part of the reason for that, I believe, is that we've lost a historical understanding of, of why we are where we are today, both for good and for ill, right? Tradition, church history is not infallible, but it helps us to recognize the good things that have led us to where we are uh, in our churches today, and then some of the mistakes that have been made that need to be corrected. So this is this is really, really important. Of course, the, the Protestant reformers were reacting against a lot of the heresy that had developed in the Roman Catholic Church in the late Middle, Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we often think of the Reformation in terms of, you know, recovering doctrines like justification by faith alone, through Christ alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone, scripture alone, sola scriptura, those sorts of doctrines. And they were very, very important. And in fact, what's you know what's important to recognize with those recoveries is that many of those men that you mentioned, in fact, all of them, Luther in Germany, Zwingli and Bootser and sort of the Swiss, uh, what's now you know Switzerland, uh, Calvin in France, Thomas Cranmer, and then later John Knox in England, and then later Baptists, which we'll talk about in a moment, they all agreed on a lot of things that <clears throat> needed to have needed to be reformed. Uh, we think of the five solas. They were all in pretty much agreement on those issues, justification by faith alone, uh, the problems that had developed in, in Roman Catholic theology, particularly in the area of the doctrine of salvation. Right. Where they differed, where they disagreed, and where they, they came into a lot of debate and discussion, they all admired each other, but there was definitely disagreement, was largely in the area of worship. Uh, mm -hmm. And so the Protestant Reformation not only was a time of recovering important doctrines regarding salvation, but it was a time of a lot of discussion on issues related to worship theology and worship practice. And so it's really helpful to look at what happened during that period because it impacts how we think today. And as we'll talk about in a moment, it really impacts where Baptists come from. That's right. Yeah. So uh, one of the most important uh, issues that was debated in those early years was what is the relationship between biblical authority and our corporate worship? They all agreed that the Bible is our supreme authority, sola scriptura. Where they disagreed is to what degree that mm. authority applies to our worship. So men like Martin Luther, and especially those who come after him, argued that we need to get rid of everything that's heretical. Okay, they all agreed on that. But when it comes to elements of our worship, things that perhaps Roman Catholicism introduced in the Middle Ages into our worship practices, as long as those things are not heretical, we can still do them 
uh, in our worship. We can sort of take them or leave them. They said these things are indifferent. They're not prescribed in scripture, but they're also not heretical. So since they're indifferent, we can we can continue to do them or we can get rid of them if we'd like to do that. So things like lighting of incense or lighting of candles or visual uh, icons, not that we worship those things. They were very much against the worship of those icons, but perhaps we can use them as visual aids that can be teaching aids in our churches, you know, things like that. Whereas others of the reformers, such as Ulrich Zwingli, Martin Bootser, and John Calvin, they, they differed from Luther on this point. They said, we agree that these things are indifferent. They're not prescribed in scripture, but neither are they heretical. But where they disagreed with Luther is they said, if they're indifferent, if they have not been prescribed in the sufficient word, then we ought not to do them. And so these men advocated for far more simple worship, worship that was simply uh, found in the pages of scripture, we're going to strip away all of those extra things that the Roman Catholic Church had added, and we're going to be, we're going to try to go as, as close as we can to New Testament church practice. And yep. so they wanted to get rid of any of the visual elements of worship. They wanted to get rid of things like candles and incense and, <clears throat> and all of those sorts of things and be be very biblically simple. And so that really was a was a significant difference between some of the reformers like Luther and then also Cranmer in England. So when you think of the Lutheran Church or you think of the Anglican Church, yeah. you 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 can sort of visualize more of the rituals and ceremonies and and the ministers wearing robes and all that sort of stuff. That yeah. is on one side of the equation. But then when you when you look at what is what we often would call the reformed wing of the Protestant Reformation, Calvin, Bootser, um, and then later John Knox and the Puritans in England, uh, they they advocated for far more biblical simplicity. Mm-hmm. And really it comes down to trust in the sufficient word. They, they, they argued that God alone has the prerogative to determine how he is to be worshipped, and so we can't trust our own creativity. Uh, mm. We can't, even with good motives, we don't want to yep. add anything to our worship except what has been prescribed in the sufficient word of God. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's so good. There, there are so many things that we could go from there to continue, but we want to we want to keep this more in general terms today. But my, my thoughts, thinking of these, even today we see so much... Um, things that we do inside the church as the church body that are begun from good motives yes but yet um they there is no scriptural um foundation for them but it, it comes from a well g- surely god would would you know receive this as a as a meager offering right um and we know um many times in scripture that uh, people have been um have done that same thing <laughs> yeah, and it did absolutely. not fare quite as well as we That's right. fare today yeah. with with uh offering god what we think he ought to or what he what we think he needs so that's okay right. so let's um that's that's a great summary for us and kind of let's let's come into the 17th century and you mentioned knox and the puritans yes and i think that there is some debate between where the baptists come from but I, i'm 
fairly confident that we, the, the 17th century guys who, uh, particular Baptists in particular, uh, flow from the Puritan thought, correct? Right. Yeah. Could you talk just a little bit about that and bring us into the 16th or 17th century? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, there were definitely, you know, we, you know, that issue of biblical, um, the, the the role of scripture and over worship was a yeah. was a separating issue but then of course the doctrine of baptism was was a big issue as yeah. well and there were yeah. some groups prior to the 17th century that began to practice believer baptism by immersion but they had all sorts mm-hmm. of different theological uh persuasions it really wasn't until the 17th century in England that that uh, some groups of, of 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 pastors and theologians began to come to the convic- conviction of believer baptism by immersion yeah. and these were men who very much aligned theologically with the puritan influence in the church of england yeah. the puritans what they were is they were pastors that were within the church of england but who had been influenced by calvin's theology and objected in particular to the church of england adding all of this extra ritual and extra requirements to public worship and so they wanted to purify the church from within eventually they separate themselves off and become really the foundation of what we see as modern day presbyterianism but there were some groups that were more separatistic that didn't really see any value in trying to purify the church. So they separated themselves out and they also came to the conviction of believers baptism by immersion. And that is the foundation of the early English Baptists. They were very much similar in theology to the Puritans in terms of the doctrine of salvation and so many other things, including the authority of Scripture. Yeah. But they 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 believed that a right application of biblical authority leads to the conviction of believer baptism by immersion. And so that's where early English Baptists come out of, uh, really out of that Puritan and separatist influence in England, but really they believed that they were applying biblical authority more consistently, that, yes. you know, these yes. these Puritans, even though they emphasized mm-hmm. the authority of scripture, they didn't apply it when it came to things like, that's right. uh, like believers baptism by immersion right. among a couple of the things. So that's kind of where Baptists come from in England. Yeah, and I, I, a name that comes to mind is John Owen who um, I know that Baptists have draw a lot of theological roots from him, very influential, I know, in some circles. And um, yeah, so for me, um, I've, I was a Southern Baptist for uh, my entire, from a babe. And uh, <laughs> in Baptist life, you know, in that sort of that sort of circle for a long time, up until very recently. And what I've found out in the last, I don't know, five, six years, is that there's a whole segment of um, me. I've been a proud Baptist. I love being Baptist. I'm Baptist to the core in some sense. Um, But there's a segment of history that I know that I'm not alone in, in uh, that there were Baptists prior to 1950. And I think that, um, (laughs) and there were different types of Baptists. You know what I'm saying? I I say that tongue in cheek, but. Yes. Um, I have I've recently discovered and it's been a really, really neat thing for me personally, as I've been on staff in a Baptist church um, at some time or another in the last 13 years. And so I have been um, so well served by digging into our Baptist heritage and the 
um, well, I guess what I love the most is our the heritage that we had, and it's it's kind of rocky right now. But the the strength that we placed on the authority and sufficiency of the Word of God, yes. particularly in our worship services, it governs the church. It governs how we ought to operate. It, it governs our polity. It governs just our general ecclesiology. How how the church ought to function, how right. it ought to run, um, what the emphasis of a local church ought to be. Yeah. And uh, when we gather, how how we ought to how we ought to sing, how we ought to preach, what right. we ought to preach, and yeah. all of these things, and it's so enriching for me, and I'm thankful for it. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's interesting. We yeah. often think that you know the bat the, the Baptist distinctive is believer baptism by immersion. Yeah, yeah, which of course is true, but sure. actually it goes deeper than that. The Baptist sure. distinctive is the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. Baptism by believer baptism by immersion flows out from it's an that. effect. It's an effect right. of that. That, yeah, that that's is right. an application. That's right. Yeah. Of really what is our distinctive. And even like I said, even in contrast to sort of a, a Presbyterian approach, yeah. where we share a lot in similarity, that it's still that the biggest difference is how we apply the, the scriptures to our practice. That's and right. Baptists said since the beginning in the 17th century that if we want to consistently apply the authoritative and sufficient word to our practice, then that leads us to believer baptism by immersion. So we became known right. for our, our doctrine of baptism, but really it was rooted in a robust theology of the authority and sufficiency of scripture. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we have a, um, I don't want to get in, this isn't one uh, po podcast on hermeneutics, but the New Testament priority is essential in our in our believer's baptism doctrine. Right. Um, the, the priority of the New Testament within the scope of scripture, scripture as a whole is, is sufficient, but New Covenant worship defines uh, historically Baptists and their worship. And so we we get to this place in the mid to sort of late um, 17th century where there were a few um, particular Baptists in particular, uh, Keach and Kiffin and Nollis yeah. and a few other men. Um, one, uh, Nehemiah Cox as well, um, yep. so, several of these guys. Jeremiah, yep. And they are, um, they are spurred and driven to distinguishing themselves and separating themselves from the Presbyterians while not um, alienating them, but right. separating and distinguishing themselves first with the first London confession. And then um, they strengthened it. Um, this was several years later with the second London confession, um, second London Baptist confession. And this is where we want to spend a little bit of our time today. Um, the, the authors and the signers of the, of the confession, you can tell in the language of the confession that this was an important, uh, not a peripheral or a side issue, but this is an important issue within the worship of the churches. Um, and so I guess this will come to our third segment today. Um, the 1689 informs the church how we ought to worship cons considering the, the text of scripture. And so uh, if you don't mind, I would love to just read the, the paragraph in chapter 22. Um, our church is using this version, the modern English version. Great. I prefer the old English myself, but this is easier to teach from. Yeah. Um, but just the uh, chapter 22, it's so helpful. It talks about the elements of religious worship. 
um, paragraph five, we can just talk about this a little bit. <clears throat> In the confession, chapter 22, paragraph five, they write that the elements of religious worship of God include reading the scriptures, preaching and hearing the word of God, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord, as well as the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper. They must be performed out of obedience to him, being the, God the Father, with understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear. Also purposeful acts of humbling with fasting and times of thanksgiving should be observed on special occasions in a holy and religious manner. So um, just will you help us unpack these elements of worship and why we should be cautious about adding to these elements? And, and the reason we have these elements are they're, they're prescribed for us in the text of scripture. Can you speak to that a little bit for us? Yeah, absolutely. So uh again the 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 men who formulated the 1689 which by the way in many respects is very similar to the westminster confession of faith that the puritans yeah, yeah it is wrote. they're, they're we're, it's word for word the same in many many respects with a couple really important key differences right so that just yes. shows the similarity but then the differences these men again within this document stressed the authority and sufficiency of the word of God all the way back in article one of the confession. Mm, they're emphasizing yes. that everything that we need for life and godliness is found in the sufficient word. That's the foundation. Then when you get to this chapter on worship, they explicitly say in a couple of the earlier paragraphs that the acceptable way of worshiping God is instituted by himself and it is delimited by his revealed will. And, right. and they explicitly said, we talked about this earlier, he may not be worshipped according to the, the imagination and devices of men, not yeah. by anything that we create that God has not prescribed. So that's the foundation yeah. that then yeah. flows out in these later paragraphs that say, okay, what has God prescribed? That's right. Uh, and, exactly and right. We, uh, this is one area we might talk in a moment about how things shifted later. Sure. Sure. But this is one area where things have shifted. Today, when we talk about the ordinances of the church, we typically say there's two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. But if you think about it, that word ordinance simply means a command, a, a yep. command of God. And yep. these earlier 17th century Baptists, they didn't say there's only two ordinances. That this paragraph that you read was were all the ordinances that God prescribed, things like preaching and hearing the word of God, reading the scripture. Those are biblical ordinances. That's right. Uh, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper. All of these are commands of the Lord that we must include in our corporate worship. And then as they at least imply in this fifth paragraph, but they say explicitly in these other paragraphs that we've mentioned, to go beyond what God has prescribed is dangerous yep. because then we're trusting in our own imagination and our own creativity. As you said earlier, it might be good motives, yep. but as Paul said in Colossians, it might have the appearance of wisdom, but mm. it is actually will worship. It oh. is worship based on our own ingenuity and creativity. Mm. Mm. And so these theologians and pastors who formulated and, and put forth this confession were trying to protect 
Baptist churches from going beyond what God had said and therefore, uh, you know, potentially falling into idolatry and at very least not trusting in the sufficient word to give us what God has prescribed. Yeah, that's extremely good. Um, So we want to we want to make this kind of as we the, the second half, as we wrap this episode up today, we want to spend a little time and how can the confession, particularly with I'm glad you mentioned the first chapter. That's the most important chapter. Um, it sets the tone for the confession that yeah. the word of God is is supreme in all of our dealings. Right. Um, it it, uh, it settles all the disputes that we have within the church. It ought to at least. And uh, but this worship, this chapter on worship, how can this um, how, how can we as Baptists today think critically about what we do within the corporate worship gathering? Um, and, and would you just help us think through, just give us some practical things about yeah. um, today in 21st century in the tidal wave of, I mean, we're, we just have a resurgence of culture informing the church right now. Right. And it's been going on for a while, but there seems to be a new heightened um, resurgence right now that the church needs to be grounded to the rock of Christ, right? Yeah. As we see in the New Testament. Just speak to that just a little yeah, bit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this this emphasis, which again is at the foundation of who we are as Baptists, is actually a very liberating emphasis. Sometimes, sometimes people caricature a strong emphasis on the authority and sufficiency of Scripture, particularly over our worship. Well, yeah. that's restrictive. That's constraining. And I say, no, actually, it's the complete opposite. It is freeing and liberating. Because as you said, we have all of these outward pressures, pressures from the culture, pressures from other broad evangelicals and all of their creative gimmicks, you know, the seeker movement, Pentecostalism, all of these different outward uh, pressures upon us as Baptists in our churches. And it, it could be very overwhelming. What should we include? What shouldn't we include? Uh, that church is doing this. Should we do that? You know, what what should we do? Whose whose preferences ought we to appeal to? Yeah. Uh, should we just take a vote and see what what the most people in the church want? And then after all, if, we're Baptists, right? Let's yeah, right. And if fifty one percent of the church want to do something, then the other forty nine do they just yeah. have to go along with it? Yeah. And yeah. one of the liberating things about the way that the that the uh, 1689 confession articulates this, that there's another chapter that applies to all of that. That's true. And, and this is chapter 21 on Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. Yeah. And this was a strong emphasis for these Baptist separatists. What they argued is from scripture, again, I mentioned Colossians. This is very much an emphasis in the New Testament, Romans 14, uh, Christ's condemnation of the Pharisees. What they emphasized is that God alone is the Lord of conscience, and he has left it free from human doctrines and commandments that are in any way contrary to his word or not contained in it. That's right. And here's the point. Here's the point. If a church introduces a certain activity and and you don't like it, you're like, man, I don't know if we should do that or not. If that activity has been commanded in the word of God, then you you just need to change your thinking. You ought to do it. God has commanded it. But if a church introduces something into its practice and it's not commanded in the word of God, then it actually goes against free liberty of conscience to, to do that sort of thing. Yeah. 
And it is, it is actually freeing for our consciences when we, when we simply trust what God has said. That's freeing for pastors. Yes. Pastors don't have to worry about the latest trends, the latest fads. Should we include this? Should we not include this? And I think it is wonderfully freeing for those of us who are in the pews. We don't have to wonder or worry, what are they going to introduce next week? What what latest you know gimmick or fad is going to come down yeah. the road? No, yeah. we know that we yeah. are simply trusting in the sufficient word. And so that that's how we should approach this, right? As Christians, as church members, we ought to evaluate everything that we are doing, <clears throat> excuse me, in the context of our churches, in our worship, and in the entirety of our ministries. We ought to compare it to the text of scripture. And as you rightly said, Duffy, particularly the New Testament, because we are New Testament churches, where in the New Testament do we find explicit biblical warrant for what we are doing? That's right. And if we do that, what we're going to find is that there are six clearly prescribed elements that the confession lists in chapter 22, the reading of the word, the preaching of the word, the praying of the word, the singing of the word, and then the two visible representations of spiritual reality, baptism and the table. Those are what God has commanded us to do. And it is actually freeing when we say, you know what, we're going to trust that God has commanded these things. These are the means that he has given to us both for his glory in our worship and also for our sanctifying benefit. We don't need anything else, no gimmicks, no pressure from unbelieving culture and no pressure from even the believers around us. We're going to trust in what God has commanded us. And that is freeing and liberating. And by the way, since the Holy spirit of God is the one who inspired these commands, we can know with a surety that the Holy Spirit of God is going to use these means to glorify God through our worship and sanctify our souls. We don't have that assurance mm. if we introduce other elements. We don't know. Is the Holy Spirit going to use this or not? We yeah. know he's going to use his word, and we know he's going to yeah. use those elements that he has prescribed for us in the scriptures. Yeah, and this might be a little detour, but I think it's well worth it. What you just mentioned, a couple things come to mind, but specifically, the emphasis that churches, uh, particularly, just, specifically, we're talking Baptist churches, um, the emphasis of our worship services ought not to be um, a drawing of unbelievers, right. but serving the feast for the believers it is a discipleship mechanism for the church it's for the primary means of discipleship for the church is to be fed on the word of god and to um obey the word and the ordinances and the sacraments and so would you speak i know that in uh got it right here in this book you mentioned some of that that the corporate worship services following on the heels of the 1689 confession yeah are a speak to this discipleship in the corporate worship service absolutely yeah i love this i love this concept yes so one of the things that has shifted in broader evangelicalism and in in most baptist churches today is a is really a shift in theology of what worship is yeah the the protestant reformers 
and then later the Puritans and the Baptists understood worship to be the corporate worship of the church to be a weekly covenant renewal of our relationship with God through the gospel. So it is, it is absolutely glorifying to God that, but it's not simply the sort of experience where we have this emotional, you know, emotional experience and we even just express praise to the Lord. That's not all that's happening. Certainly we do express praise to the Lord, but our corporate worship gatherings are opportunities for us as God has prescribed in his word for us to renew the communion that we enjoy with him through the gospel. And so this is why our corporate worship services really ought to, they don't in many Baptist churches today, but they ought to embody that covenant that we have through Christ, where Mm -hmm. God is the one who calls us to worship, just like it was on the basis of his effectual call that we came to him at our salvation yes we confess our sin and unworthiness just like we did at the moment of our salvation god declares us righteous through the person and work of jesus christ just like he did our salvation and then we are ready to hear from the preached word respond with obedience and bring our prayers of supplication before the Lord. Those are the blessings that we enjoy as believers who are welcomed into communion with God through Christ. And then the the pinnacle, the most beautiful uh, picture that God has prescribed for us of the communion that we enjoy with God through Christ is the Lord's table. Mm. And that is a visible celebration and remembrance of, of, of Christ's broken body and shed blood on our behalf, which is the means through which we have come into covenant relationship with the Lord. So by doing those things in corporate worship week after week after week after week, it's like we're practicing our Christianity, just like you practice a, you know, a golf swing or you practice a musical instrument. Yeah. Corporate worship is a way in which we practice the internal knowledge we have about our relationship with God through the gospel. Mm but we are acting it out through the corporate worship service. And therefore we are renewing ourselves in these things so that we live them out every day of our lives. And so this is why corporate worship is primarily to glorify God and to form and shape believers into Mm -hmm. disciple worshipers of Jesus Christ. So there there is a discipleship emphasis that is occurring in corporate worship. The corporate worship service is not primarily for unbelievers. It is for believers to worship the Lord and believers to be edified in their covenant relationship with God. Now, that doesn't mean we chase unbelievers away. Uh, A gospel-shaped worship service is profoundly evangelistic, but we don't design the worship service for unbelievers any more than the Old Testament Israelites designed what happened in the te- in the tabernacle or temple for the unbelieving pagans. No, right. we are the New Testament temple, and in a very similar way and in, in an analogous way to the Old Testament temple, we are the we are the dwelling place of God's Spirit. Ephesians chapter two says, where God is glorified through what we do, we are sanctified into disciple worshipers, and then unbelievers who observe what's going on, yeah. what might happen is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 14, they see our covenant relationship with with God through the gospel, and they fall on their face before God in repentant faith. We pray that that happens, but Mm. we don't design what we're doing for unbelievers because unbelievers can't worship. Uh, Only believers who have been drawn 
have been brought near by the blood of Christ yeah. can, can truly worship the Lord. That is an excellent point. Um, I would love to take a detour there, but I want to, I want to end today with one final question. I know that you have another book that I actually have not read, but I'm, uh, it's going to be ordered soon. I asked my wife to put it in our, in our, <laughs> she gets all, she orders all my books for me, thankfully, nice. or else I would be spending more money than I ought. But um, <laughs> you have a book authored, Let the Little Children Come. Yes. And specifically at our church, we are not family integrated, but we are wanting to, we're moving that direction slowly. Yeah. And I would love for you just to spend a few moments about all the conversation that we've had so far about scripture regulated and informed and um, driven corporate worship, this idea of discipleship, um, that a corporate worship service, a gospel shaped service yes. is a means of grace in the life of a believer to grow them. So where does the family, uh, a mother and a father and their children, where do they fit in to this gospel shaped discipleship making um, corporate worship service. So let's spend a few minutes and just yeah. kind of unpack that. Yeah, absolutely. So you 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 are you sort of framed it exactly right. The big two points that we've been emphasizing in this in this episode: the authority and sufficiency of Scripture, and the formative purpose of corporate worship, the disciple making purpose of corporate worship. Both of those reasons, I believe, are powerful reasons why we ought to welcome our children into the Sunday morning worship service. Not that our unbelieving children can worship. I just said unbelievers can't worship, but they can be impacted and formed in evangelistic ways by what's happening in, in a gospel-shaped worship service. So right. in terms of the authority and sufficiency of the word, when you read the scriptures, you don't find taking children out, segregating them into, you know, other children's church or other gatherings outside of the corporate gatherings of the church. No, what you right. find both by example and precept is that the children are there. I mean, the most obvious example of this is when Paul writes to children, for instance, in Ephesians chapter six, children obey your parents. This was a letter meant to be read in the corporate gathering of the church. He expected yeah. them to be there, right? Yeah. And we can look at a lot of examples of that. I would just, you know, that that's I lay that out in the book that you look at the examples in scripture, both in the Old and New Testament. What we find is that the children were there. Why? Yeah. Second point, because of the formative influence of corporate worship. If corporate worship is only believers expressing worship to the Lord then we might rightly say, well, our unconverted children can't do that, so let's take them out and do something different with them. But if corporate worship is actually primarily about embodying the gospel and discipling people through the gospel, then I want my children there. I want them to be formed in those ways. I want right. them to hear the call to worship the confession of sin, the declaration of pardon. I want them to hear the preached word and the read word. I want them to see other believers singing in praise to the Lord. That is all leading them to Christ. Let the little children come, right? Yeah, and even, so good. <clears throat> even the table, they can't eat or drink yep. of the elements yep. of the table. But what does that table do? It proclaims the Lord's death until he comes. That sure. is every time my children are observing 
believers celebrating the Lord's table, they are visually witnessing a God-prescribed proclamation of the death of Christ. And so that Mm. is evangelistic for them. And then as children do come to Christ, that is a way in which they are discipled and matured into uh, followers of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Wow. That's so good. Well, um, Dr. Annual, I'm so thankful that you've come uh, come on our uh, podcast today and you've given your time to speak to this. There are so many more things that we could probably talk about, but this was just meant to be something to for our people, specifically at our church, to listen to and just to help ha- have a different voice speaking into this issue and um, just give some good content. And so thank you for coming on again uh, yeah, my pleasure. for us today. Well, that's it for today's episode. We thank you again, listener, for taking the time to listen to the Asking for a Friend podcast. And we sure hope it's been a blessing to you. Take a few minutes and share this episode if you think it's been helpful um, on whatever social media platform that you have. And don't forget that you can go on our website, bbcemory.org. Go to our media tab, scroll all the way to the bottom of the page, and there's a box that you can submit a question to us that we potentially will take and address at a future date on the future podcast. But until next time, grace and peace be with you all.